Hi there, my fellow game devs, and welcome to the All Things Unity podcast. My name is Ruben, and I'll be your host. In today's episode, we are going to continue our discussion about a book called A Philosophy of Software Design by John R. Ousterhout. Last time, we got up to chapter 5, and we discussed many interesting things, like what John thinks is the fundamental problem in computer science, like problem decomposition, and it's about how to take a large problem and subdivide it into multiple small problems uh, that we can solve. And we also discussed the two main mindsets programmers tend to have while programming, the tactical and the strategic mind. In tactical programming, we are simply busy trying to implement our feature or solve a bug uh, as fast as we can not thinking about the future and additional complexity we introduce to, uh, to the system. And in strategic programming, however, working code is not enough, and thus we also focus our efforts uh, on anticipating future changes. And then we continued our discussion with a chapter uh, four, which is my favorite chapter of this book, I think, and it's about uh, modules uh, should be deep. Uh, In this chapter, John explains the notion of deep and shallow modules, uh, where deep modules provide a small, concise interface in comparison to the large amount of implementation they hide. And shallow modules, on the other hand, is the other way around. So a shallow module provides a large, complex interface in comparison to the functionality it provides. And I also compared the practice to clean code and talk about the contrast between them. And the last chapter we covered in the previous episode was about information hiding, which is the fundamental thing deep modules do. They have a small interface, yet provide a lot of functionality. We talked about how to hide information and avoid information leakage. And we also discussed the formal and informal elements of an interface and how cognitive load also plays a role in understanding an interface. And, well, today we are going to dive into the next five chapters of the book. We are going to start our discussion with chapter 6, called General Purpose Modules Are Deeper. Here we will take a look at what John's advice is um, about preferring general purpose modules uh, over special purpose modules. General purpose code is often much simpler, and we will going uh, about to discuss this. And then we will follow up with the next logical chapter, of course, which is chapter 7. And this chapter is all about different layers, different abstractions. And software is always written in some kind of layer design. No matter how fancy of an architecture you conjure up, you just build layers of extraction upon each other. This is a fundamental aspect of software. So in chapter 7, we are going to take a look at what John has to say about this. And next up is chapter 8 called Pulling Complexity Downwards. And in this chapter, John teaches you to always try to keep complexities within a certain bounds. Try to encapsulate these complexities and don't bother like colors of your code with such matters. And then we continue this episode with chapter 9, Better Together or Better Apart. And in this chapter, John explains some of the strategies on how to decide to combine or take code apart. When does it make sense to combine classes and put things together? Or when would it be better to separate concepts? These are things we will try to answer in this chapter. And the last chapter we will look at in this episode is chapter 10, Defining Errors Out of Existence. 
This is one of these practices that have become really popular just from this book. And it's also one of, uh, one of these concepts that John often focuses on in his lectures on YouTube uh, or other places, I guess. I think this chapter is very valuable because it makes you think about error handling and exceptions in such a way that you can and want reduce them as much as you can from code. But let's not spoil it just now and start off with some earlier chapters first. So let's continue with chapter 6, general purpose modules are deeper. And in, in software design, you often need to make a choice whether to implement code special or general purpose. General purpose code is generally uh, more difficult to write and will take you some more time to think about and implement. This comes back to the tactical and strategic mindsets we discussed a bit earlier. In a tactical mindset, you might implement the feature in a special purpose sense, fully focused on the task at hand to achieve its goal. But with a more strategic mind, you might implement the feature anticipating future changes or reusability purposes. But sometimes it's a trap to implement something too special or too general purpose, because in some cases implementing something too general purpose might not solve the problem you have today in a simple way. But then again, if you make it too special purpose, you might quickly find out where you want to reuse that logic that you can't. So in this next chapter, we will discuss how to find the proper balance between general and special purpose code. And John says to make modules quote-unquote somewhat general purpose and with that statement he means that the module's functionality should reflect what you need today but its interface should not. The interface of the module should be general and easy enough to be reused in multiple use cases. So the word somewhat means don't get carried away and build something so general purpose that it's difficult to your current needs. And the most important takeaway from uh, this is that uh, a general purpose module often results in simpler and deeper modules than special purpose modules. Keep that in the back of your mind while developing a game and yeah, try to keep your code reusable. And he also says that general purpose modules lead to better information hiding and thus less leakage. This seems kind of obvious, right? Something general purpose will definitely require less in-depth or like, domain knowledge uh, than some special purpose module. It's just the nature of the animal. And John then sums up a couple of questions you could ask yourself while designing your game. And let's start off with the first one. Um, what is the simplest interface that will cover all my current needs? This comes down to keeping the interface small and simple to use. How can you uh, expose just functionality you need for your use case today without leaking information? A simple example is the following. If you have an interface that requires a lot of arguments and functions, then you are probably not simplifying things. Secondly, he asks, uh, in how many situations will this method be used? And this might be a difficult question to answer, since you might not be able to predict this quickly, but if, you, uh, if your method is currently designed and implemented for a single special purpose use case, this might be a red flag again, and you might want to see if you can find a more general purpose solution to your problem. And third, is the API easy to use for my current needs? 
This is a question you might ask yourself to determine if you have made some API too general purpose and you haven't gone totally overboard. If you need to write too much code in order to use your uh, class API correctly, that might be a red flag that the API is far too general purpose. But to wrap this chapter up, general purpose interfaces uh, have many advantages over special purpose interfaces, like being simpler with fewer methods and they're deeper. They provide a nicer separation between classes, while special purpose interfaces often have dependencies and thus leak information between them. So making classes general purpose will reduce the complexity of your system. So that's it already. For chapter 6, general purpose modules are deeper. And um, what's your opinion on this? I think that in some cases you just need some special purpose module. But in most of these cases you can... Uh, use it in some general sense as well so there needs to be a, a fine balance between yeah for what you need it and when you need it um, and i think that his advice of making it somewhat general purpose is yeah it's 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 a good piece of advice because it's it it allows you to to keep the balance and uh, yeah keep things simple and next up is chapter seven called different layer different abstraction John starts with the simple notion that software is always built in layers of abstraction. Each layer provides a different abstraction than the layer above and below it. And if a system contains adjacent layers with similar abstractions, that's often a red flag that suggests a problem with class decomposition. And the first concept in this chapter is called pass-through methods. And these are very simple, often one to three line functions that wrap something like library calls. And the example he gives in the book is one of a, a text document that has functions like get cursor offset, uh, which simply calls the member variables text area dot get cursor offset. Uh, and he says that this is a red flag and should be avoided since it makes modules or classes very shallow. Um, and the interface gets uh, very wide uh, for the functionality it provides, and thus complexity increases. And, well, I somewhat agree with him, uh, but not entirely, though. Remember that in clean code, Uncle Bob opt often talks about writing code in a generally understandable way, so wrapping cumbersome logic into functions that have nicer names seems to be good. Although, this is not always the case, and when you simply wrap all the logic of private members and expose them through functions, you will end up with a very fragile and exposed code. John um, will call this information leakage, and I quickly want to refer back to a section of clean code where Uncle Bob explains how he should hide implementation details through encapsulation. And this also includes clever workarounds for exposing these one-liner functions, Remember that Uncle Bob's advice to turn questions into commands. So some code that involves some question that needs information from the get cursor offset function might be able to get turned into a command which the call to get cursor offset um, can be made private. This way you don't need to expose all this logic. But I still do believe that extracting simple short functions for the sake of documentation uh, and easy to read code is a good practice, but they should not all have to be exposed publicly. I think when you extract like all these little functions, they are often private functions and they are not exposed to the outside world. So 
what do you think about this? Do you agree with John or with Uncle Bob? And I personally am somewhere in the middle, I think. You need to apply these things where they fit best and keep the single responsibility principle in the back of your mind while doing it. And a way to identify that you are working with a pass-through functions is when two or more functions have the exact same arguments and are being called in sequence. Keep an eye out on that and try to remove the ones that do not make sense. And John also discusses some information where pass-through functions might be okay. And that's when these pass-through functions provide meaningful functionality. And he says that web servers sometimes are implemented this way. And he's probably right. I'm not sure. Maybe he means how some web servers implement some middleware to serve uh, like the request. But he also uh, specifically mentions the decorator pattern. This is a simple wrapper pattern used to create complex objects, which also encourages duplication across layers. It basically provides an API where it takes an existing object and extends it with functionality and then returns an object of the same type. This way you can decorate, quote unquote, an object with un uh, additional functionality, so to say. And I personally do not use the decorator pattern often because I, I don't like the way the abstraction works. And I prefer using like an abstract factory pattern more, but that's just me. Um, and how about you? Let me know in the comments if you like. Um, next, John touches on the subject of interfaces that uh, should expose different abstractions than they use internally. This is not always the case, but still often. He explains how uh, often the I.O. of an interface is defined in its specific objects which do not necessarily represent how the data is processed or used internally of that interface. This might relate back to like DTO objects we talked about in previous episodes. Here we talked about how DTOs are used for communication purposes to break dependencies. This is a good practice however, uh, maybe not so between modules you design uh, for your own, um, that run on the same machine and on the same network. But what John basically means is that you should not expose the internal data structures you use on the inside of your abstraction for management uh, to the outside world. Um, this can lead to some really awkward to use APIs, uh, not to mention that they will leak information as well. And he then also mentions the concept of pass-through variables, which are basically the same as pass-through functions. Try to avoid this and use only the meaningful parts of objects you need to use. And this will often turn your functions into more general fu purpose functions, by the way. But okay, that's a wrap for chapter 7 already. And let's continue with chapter 8. And chapter 8 is about a concept John calls pulling complexity downwards. And this chapter provides some more in-depth, <laughs> no pun intended, to the concept of deep modules. It boils down to the idea that it's more important for a module to have a simple interface than to have a simple implementation. This also relates back to the information hiding, I think, and proper encapsulation. And John says that sometimes you can simplify an interface by having some kind of config file you can add to the system. This config file can then uh, enforce some of the more complex uh, uh, settings you and you can leave it up to some system configuration to deal with that complexity instead of a programmer. This is brilliant, isn't it? And he's totally right. This 
is also mentioned in the, the pragmatic programmer, if I'm correct. Use config files to reduce complexity and promote reusability. Just don't go overboard with it, since you don't want to flood other people with our problems, of course. If you just put all the complex settings in some config file, you will postpone it for some other uh, user of the system, but the complexity is still there. So you still need to yeah, fix these issues. And it will reduce complexity in the short term, but you might slow down in the long term uh, if you just make these comp uh, config files far too complex. So keep an eye out for overdoing it. So for example, in a Unity context, don't put all the complex settings uh, of your system in this scriptable object and leave it to some game designer to deal with it. This is just rude. Try to pull this complexity downwards into your module. If you leave the complexity in that scriptable object, you'll find out at some point that it will hurt you. May that be corrupt files, which happen sometimes, or maybe with uh, issues merging things in Git. Try to put high-level parameters in this config file if they cannot be determined by some other system automatically. And a quick example that comes to mind, uh, and one I've used before, is to have some settings that indicate how many like concurrent download requests your app can make. Because in some content-heavy game, uh, which has to download lots of assets like images, audio, video, or maybe even 3D models, you don't want to clog up that bandwidth with all these downloads. So you want to control this uh, through some config file. But then again, use discretion when pulling complexity downward. It's an idea that can easily be overdone. And John has a very nice rule for determining whether you should pull down complexity, and it goes as follows. Pulling complexity down makes the most sense if, one, the complexity being pulled down is closely related to the class existing functionality, and two, pulling the complexity down will result in many simplifications elsewhere in the application, and three, Pulling the complexity down simplifies the class's interface, and remember that the goal is to minimize the overall system complexity. And then he ends this chapter with a very nice quote. When developing a module, look for opportunities to take a little extra suffering upon yourself in order to reduce the suffering of your users. And that's it already for chapter 8. This was a very short chapter, by the way. But it's it's a nice one because I think um, pulling complexity downwards uh, really improves the, the quality of your system. If you can encapsulate complexity in the modules it belongs to, it will not leak to other modules. And thus, um, you can keep communication between modules and systems easier. And you don't create these weird dependencies everywhere. So you can keep that spaghetti monster a little bit tamed. You can make it your pet instead of some savage animal. But alright, let's continue with chapter 9, which is about better together or better apart, whatever that means. And John starts this chapter with the fact that one of the most fundamental questions in software design is to determine whether given two pieces of functionality, should they be implemented together in the same place or should they, uh, their implementations be separated? This is indeed a tough question in many situations, but Uncle Bob's SRP, the Single Responsibility Principle, can help you discover the answer to it. 
And this is not to say that the SRP will always be the, the best way to solve this issue and applying it uh, is always the best way to go. But the question about coupling things or keeping them together returns on all levels of abstraction in game development like methods, classes, services or entire systems. And the main goal for deciding uh, when things belong together or should be separated is to reduce the overall complexity of the system. And in many cases, it might seem better to separate larger things into smaller components and then build your system that way. And to me, this makes a lot of sense. And, and this is also one of the key takeaways of another really great book I read called The Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs, which I'll link into the show notes, but I'm definitely not getting into it uh, at this moment. But then again... Um, Subdividing things into smaller components can, in some cases, also increase the complexity and cognitive load for a developer. And I'll give you a simple example. Have you ever ran into the situation where you are trying to find out how things are set up in a given project, only to find out that everything is implemented with interfaces, and thus you do not know the concrete objects that are being used? And then you find out that the objects that implement these interfaces have no business doing so and seem to just have been implemented this way for convenience, but not based on some domain uh, uh, concepts. This creates so much confusion for a developer because domain concepts are implemented in seemingly random objects, just because it was easy uh, that way and to, to reference other objects. I have encountered this specific problem in many cases before in like C-sharp projects. Um, have you found out about this as well? Uh, let me know in, uh, in the comments. And then John identifies a couple of side effects of subdivision that will uh, and can increase complexity. And first of all, some complexities just come from the number of components. The more components, the harder it is to keep track of them. And second, subdivision can result in additional code to manage components. So this means that the cognitive load of the developer increases since you need to manage these objects interacting and often through uh, like abstract interfaces. And third, subdivision creates separation. Things that used to be together are now apart. And like, f like for the example that interfaces were together, which get extracted into new objects. And then fourth, subdivision can lead to duplication. And duplication is one of these things to really keep an eye out, but we've talked about this as well in, in previous episodes. Not all duplicated code are actual duplicates if they like belong to a different domain, for example. So yeah, subdivision can definitely lead to duplication, but still, um, keep an eye out for these nuances. And when I read all this, I still firmly believe that this originates from naive or dogmatic implementation of the single responsibility principle. When you create a new class or interface for everything you can come up with, subdivision will indeed lead to these side effects. But if you give it some thought and think about the number of stakeholders of a class, you probably won't run into this issue as much as John thinks you will. And I also think uh, experience plays a large role here. Experience plays a large role in how to 
properly and strategically in these book's terms separate responsibilities and not naively separating everything you can. And don't get me wrong, this is great advice and applicable in many situations. But just as with many things we have discussed from the Killeen Code book, there are nuances. Don't apply software design practices in a dogmatic way because you will quickly find out you make things complex or over-engineer things. But yeah, let's continue with the book. And John goes into uh, some advice on how to indicate code is related. And first, they share information. And this is kind of obvious, right? Still, this can also be interpreted wrongly. I mean, if your enemy class shares information with your weapon class, that does not mean that these classes should be merged into a single class. And second, classes are used together. So if you use one class, it, it's highly likely you will use another class as well. And third, classes overlap conceptually in that there is a simple higher level category that includes both pieces of code. And fourth, it's hard to understand one of the pieces of code without looking at the other. And John presents some examples of how to subdivide or separate code and when it might be better to bring things together. And he also raises another red flag. So let's quickly discuss these things. And he says to bring things together if information is shared. He gives an example where functions share and operate on the same data or information. In this case, it's a good idea to bring these functions together. And I'm not so sure if I agree. It seems perfectly logical to do this, but if you look at clean code, these functions might have been created in order to raise the level of abstraction and documentation purposes. Often these functions are private and rather shallow, but that's uh, what they're there for, and they increase readability and lev uh, leveling the abstraction level. But on the other hand, John is right, since creating these dependencies between functions seems useless and increases the complexity. I think this has to do with the nature of these functions. So if you have information sharing between functions, which are both public and reside in different classes, you might be better off to follow John's advice here. But if they are both private methods in some class, you might keep it separate and follow Uncle Bob's advice. And next he talks about bringing things together to simplify the interface. He says it very nicely, so I'll quote him. So, when two or more modules are combined into a single module, it may be possible to define an interface for the new module that is simpler or easier to use than the original interfaces. This often happens when the original modules each implement parts of a solution to a problem. And yeah, I certainly agree with him, abetting two modules behind a single interface. May that be two classes behind an interface definition or two entire systems behind the same web API. It will simplify the interface if these modules are not supposed to be used separately. Then you can make these classes internal to some namespace and don't worry about it. And next up, he talks about bringing things together to eliminate duplication. So if you see some code repeated over and over again, you should see if you can reorganize it to remove that duplication. And John says that in many cases, you can factor out the repeated code into a method and simply call that method. And I think Uncle Bob would agree with him on this advice, uh, since he basically says the same thing. 
just remember the discussion we had in the previous episode that not all seemingly duplicated code uh, are actual duplicates. But yeah, next he talks about separating general purpose and special purpose code. This seems like a no-brainer as well, but it yeah, it can be really difficult. Sometimes you'll have written uh, some really general purpose code, but there are some special like special branches in that code that refer to some special purpose requirements. So in this case, you should find some other solution to run this special purpose scenario and then separate the special from the general purpose code since it often leads to the code being repeated and duplicated, which is a red flag. And this will also reduce the complexity of your general purpose module. Having general purpose mixture modules is a red flag as well. And then again, he has a very nice quote and it's even printed in bold. And it says, each method should do one thing and do it completely. This is a very bold statement. <laughs> See what I did there? And <laughs> he means that users should be able to use a function or interface without having a high cognitive load and the need for combining method calls in order to get something done. And he then raises a red flag and it's about the notion of conjoining methods. And it says, and I quote, it should be possible to understand each method independently. If you can't understand the implementation of one method without also in understanding the implementation of another, that's a red flag. This red flag can occur in other contexts as well. If two pieces of code are physically separated, but each can only be understood by looking at the other, that is a red flag, end quote. And to me, this again sounds like someone naively implementing the single responsibility principle, and he went totally overboard. And concluding arguments for this chapter are as follows, and I'll simply quote Professor Austerhout. Um... The decision to split or join modules should be based on the complexity. Pick the structure that results in the best information hiding, fewest dependencies and deepest interfaces. So yeah, that's a wrap for chapter 9, better together or better apart. There are a number of contradicting opinions compared to clean code in here, but I, yeah, I try to explain them. And I think you need to find a nice middle ground since both John and Uncle Bob have some really valid points. Don't do things religiously, but take multiple things into consideration and take the best of both worlds. Yeah, so let's continue with chapter 10. And I think this is one of the more famous uh, chapters of the book since John also um, talks about this uh, in many of his lectures. Um, it's about defining errors out of existence. And I always thought it was a very interesting practice. You do not hear other people speaking about that much. Or, well, maybe they do. But, yeah, Professor Austerhout uh, articulates this principle really, really well. And he says that one of the worst sources of complexity in a system is exception handling. This is a very nice statement, right? Aren't exceptions supposed to be good? Well, we've discussed in, uh, this in depth in one of the previous episodes about clean code as well. Uncle Bob has some specific practices for error handling, which we digested in a, like a Unity 3D context. We talked about how you should try to work around exceptions since throwing them will always slow your game down. 
Remember that you should never throw exceptions in mission critical code. And I think John agrees uh, since he says that, uh, and I quote, code that deals with special conditions is inherently harder to write than code that deals with normal cases. And developers often define exceptions without considering how they are handled. And Uncle Bob has a similar idea, remember? He says that you should always define exceptions from the view of the color of your code. So they make sense. And don't forget to add constructive and informative error messages in exceptions, by the way. And in this chapter, John is going to explain how we can change the semantics uh, of operations so that exceptions have no place anymore. You simply don't need them anymore. So the overall lesson of this chapter is to reduce the places where exceptions must be handled. So yeah, let's take a look. So first of all, what is an exception exactly? Well, John defines an exception as, and I quote, any uncommon condition that alters the normal flow of a control in a program, end quote. And many programming languages include a formal exception handling mechanism that allows exceptions to be thrown by lower code and then caught by enclosing code. However, exceptions can occur in the normal code flow as well. For example, the dreaded null reference exception or missing reference exception in Unity 3D specifically. And John also gives us a number of reasons why exceptions might occur. And reason one is, a caller may provide bad arguments or configuration information. And two, an invoked method may not be able to complete the requested operation. For example, an I.O. operation might fail or uh, a required resource may not be available. And three, in a distributed system, network packages may be lost or delayed. Service may not respond in a timely fashion or payers may communicate in unexpected ways. And four, the code may detect bugs, uh, internal uh, inconsistencies, or situations it is not prepared to handle. And all systems uh, we produce need to be fault tolerant, and this error handling can really be a significant fraction of all the code in your system. John says that code that deals with exceptions is inherently more difficult to write since you need to take care of all the known and even unknown exceptional cases. A programmer can choose to do two things when an error happens. He can either choose to continue execution, as if the exception has not occurred, or abort the execution and report the error. Although uh, the latter case can result in some really awkward and complex situations. Because if you throw an exception, you might need to restore the state of the system back to some state uh, it was somewhere before the exception was thrown to keep things consistent. And even better, when you implement specific code that deals with exception handling, you introduce the potential for even more opportunities where exceptions can be thrown. <laughs> well, this is pretty funny, right? How many of you have run into the issue uh, where your game um, just does not work because you debug log something in like a catch statement of a try catch uh, because it throws a null reference exceptions? I've certainly done that in the past. <laughs> So you really need to make sure uh, to prevent like a cascade of exceptions uh, and find a way to deal uh, with them uh, without creating more exceptions. 
John, however, also wants you to really consider that trying to handle each exception that can possibly be thrown is a bad practice. It will lead into an over-defensive style where anything that looks even a bit suspicious is rejected with an exception, which will result in more and more complexity. And he then says something really interesting, which is, and I quote, it's tempting to use exceptions to avoid dealing with diff- uh, difficult situations rather than figuring out a clean way to handle it. Just throw an exception and point the problem out to the caller. This way you simply pass the problem to someone else and it adds to the system complexity. And he also relates the concept of shallow and deep modules into this discussion about the exceptions and he says, classes with lots of exceptions have complex interfaces and they are shallower than classes with fewer exceptions. The complexity lies with handling exceptions, not throwing them. Throwing an exception is very easy, but actually taking care of them is where things can become really difficult. And thus, we want to reduce the number of places where exceptions have to be handled. And John will explain about four ways uh, to do this in the remaining part of this chapter. We will look at a practice he calls defining errors out of existence, masking exceptions, exception aggregation, and last but not least, why not just crash? Sometimes crashing might be the most viable option, but let's first dive into the first practice, defining errors out of existence. And he says the best way to eliminate exceptions from your code is to define your APIs so there are no exceptions that need to be handled. And a simple example he gives is when you try to delete a file from the file system, yet the file is not there. You should not throw an exception because it is already deleted. Or another example in the book um, is like the substring method in Java. If you pass uh, like out of range arguments to the substring function, um, and I'm not sure if C Sharp does this, but I think it will too, an exception will be thrown. And there are other languages like Python, he says, where the values are simply clamped uh, to the min and max length of the string. This is a safer way to do like a substring implementation. Plus you have just defined errors out of existence. And to me, this sounds perfectly reasonable, but you have to be honest that not all functionality can be adapted this way and not throw exceptions. I mean, there are cases where you simply need the data uh, conform to some like preconditions you have set for some particular functionality. Because without this data conformity, uh, you simply cannot continue. But John has three more practices left, so let's see what he explains um, next and to, to solve this issue. So next up is the concept of exception masking. And this is a technique where you detect an and handle an exception in a lower level system, so that higher level systems of the software do not need to be aware of this condition. And this seems so well, straightforward or like common sense to me. I mean, isn't this how you should treat like most of the exceptions anyway? I think you must always do your best effort not to let uh, exceptions bubble up to the surface. But yeah, well, in in some cases, uh, you won't be able to do that. And John gives a simple example where, for example, on some web application and Uh, when an exception occurs, sometimes it's just better to do nothing at all and just let things time out. 
This will result in like a timeout request, but you do not have to handle all kinds of exceptions. And well, to me, this sounds like a pretty weird solution for a problem because you will probably not be able to communicate the fault situation to the users or consumers of your interface. But he's right that if you handle all these situations, your code will most likely become a bit more complex and difficult to reason about. But he says that you should try and mask these kinds of situations inside the module they occur, which is uh, an example of pulling complexity downwards. And the third technique for reducing complexity related to exception is exception aggregation. The idea here is that you handle many exceptions within a single piece of code rather uh, than having distinct handlers for many individual exceptions. And I think if you have worked with C-sharp uh, async tasks, you have encountered this pattern of an ag aggregate exception as well. So in C-sharp, uh, you could reuse the aggregate exception type to model this behavior. So exception aggregation replaces several special purpose mechanisms, each tailored for a particular situation, with a single general purpose mechanism that can handle multiple situations. This provides another illustration of the benefits of general purpose mechanisms. And I think this is a great idea, although I have not used this pattern outside async tasks, but I might give it a try in the future. But what do you think about this? How would you throw, uh, would you throw like an accurate exceptions in non-async code and handle uh, multiple exceptions that way? Let me know in the comments if you like. But yeah, the fourth technique John wants to discuss is called just crash. He says that you might want to crash the application when errors occur that you just cannot handle. All applications have errors like these and they are often very, very rare. And when you have them, you crash and print out some diagnostics information, for example. And I bet you will most definitely have seen such crashes and logs if you have worked with Unity 3D before. Not to say that Unity is bad, but these things happen and all programs suffer from these kinds of problems from time to time. And a simple example would be an out-of-memory exception. And if you have done any apps for like iOS, I bet you have suffered from this, right? So if you load like really a lot of assets for a game on iOS, it will most definitely crash at some point. You really have to unload them and make sure you free up some memory. And also make sure to like destroy any unused audio clips or animation clips, sprites and textures. These will clog up your memory big time. But in cases like out of memory, you simply crash the application and make the user restart it because it's very difficult, if not impossible, to recover from such errors. But on the other hand, if you're able to recover gracefully, you might as well do that, right? But to wrap this chapter up, John says that special cases in any form make code harder to understand and increase the likelihood of bugs. Exceptions exceptionally introduce introduce special cases into your code. That's exactly what they were designed for in the first place. The best way to reduce these kinds of special cases is to define them out of existence. For exceptions that cannot be defined uh, away, you make sure you either mask them and handle them at lower levels of your system or aggregate them to handle them all at the same place. 
And if that doesn't work, just crash if it makes sense. So, yeah, that's it for this episode, I suppose. I've been rambling long enough, but we still have 11 chapters to go, which we'll, we will discuss in the next episodes. So I think we need about two more episodes uh, about this book, A Philosophy of Software Design from John R. Ausserhout. And then we will continue our discussion with yet more books, The Pragmatic Programmer and Code Complete. And I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something. I certainly did, by refreshing all of these concepts like general versus special purpose modules and how to pull complexity downwards and when to separate things or keep things together. And John's practice of defining errors out of existence. And in the next episode, we will discuss the remainder of this book. So, okay, thank you for listening and I hope you join me on the next one as well. And please leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. Currently, you can listen to this podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Podbean. And it's greatly appreciated if you leave me a review or maybe some comments. And I also want to remind you, you can send me an email to podcast at allthingsunity.com. So, yeah, thanks again and till next time. And remember, with Unity, we can do great things. Game over.